So we're in Revelation. We're in the last chapter, and we're going to wrap it up tonight. So if you will, open your Bibles if you have your notes. Uh, you'll want to open your notes up to page 79. We covered, I think, the first five verses, but I think it's worth maybe backing up and just uh, starting from the beginning. So... In the first five verses, we have five eternal joys. And I'm just going to read the verses, and then we'll highlight some things. And as always, I'm going to be bringing things in that are not in your notes. So it would be a good idea for you to have a pen handy if you want to jot these things down. Uh, they will add significantly to your notes. So John says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. I pointed this out last week, but how interesting that we're now in the eternal state in Revelation 22, and yet we still have months. I think one of the things that I like to play with in my mind, you know, we're, we're limited because we are subject to time. God is not subject to time. And when people talk about God's plan of salvation, they often use terms like God looked down the corridor of history to see who would believe and so on and so forth. Well, that's absolutely ridiculous because he's already there. He's here today. He was here a million years ago. He's not subject to time. We're subject to time. It's impossible for us to wrap our mind around how, if you think about it, eternity envelops time. So he's around us and around every stage of history uh, at all times. So what I see here with uh, the months, if you have months, you obviously have weeks, and weeks are made up of days and so on and so forth. What we have here is really the blending of time and eternity, which to me is just a fascinating concept uh, that I like to uh, think on and play with in my mind, but I'll leave that to you to do. Verse 3, there should be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. No idea here of sitting on a cloud playing a harp. We're going to have work to do. We're going to be busy. We are going to love the work that we do. It's going to be amazing. Verse 4, they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There should be no night there, and they need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. This is what uh, we might call, and you have it there in your notes, paradise regained. You know, John Milton talked about paradise lost. Here we have paradise regained. But there's an idea that comes in with this that too many people pick up on, and I want to correct it. So here are some things that you'll not find in your notes. With the idea of regaining paradise, and I'll just use the word justification since it's usually attached to the idea of justification, I'm sure you've all heard people say justification is just as if I never sinned. That is a totally false concept. So I want to give you a few points on that so that you understand what we gain in Christ is so far beyond what Adam had in the garden that there's absolutely no comparison. It's not like we're going back 
before the fall. It's we're going forward into an entirely new realm and a new world. So jot a few things down. <clears throat> Number one, we are given eternal life, not contingent life. Remember, Adam didn't have eternal life. He had contingent life. Because he was told in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. He could only live 24 hours at a time. His life was contingent. Ours, of course, is not. Jesus said in John 11 and verse 26, whoever believes in me shall never, ever perish. So that's a tremendous distinction. Distinction number two, we have imputed righteousness from Christ, not innocence. Adam was innocent, but Adam was not righteous. We need to understand the distinction. Righteousness is absolute and permanent. Innocence can be lost. Righteousness cannot. So we need to understand that there's a great difference there. Uh, in Romans 4, in verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. And then in verse 24, he says it will also be imputed to us who believe. So imputation, we're going to hear about imputation at our church on Sunday morning. Uh, it's actually a legal term. It's a bookkeeping term, but it means to place to someone's account. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is placed to our account at the moment of salvation. That righteousness can never end. That righteousness is total, complete, and absolute. So there is a great difference there, not only in the life that we have, but in our righteousness. Number three, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit and have no potential for future separation from God. Adam was told in the day you eat thereof, you will die. That death, of course, was not him falling down and dying physically. It was spiritual separation from God. So we need to understand that for us, there is no possibility of losing the life that we have and being separated from God. And you can contrast Genesis 2.17, uh, where Adam was warned with Ephesians 1, uh, 13 and 14, where Paul talks about the fact that having heard the word of God, having believed the word of God, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the guarantee of our future eternal sharing of the life of Christ forever and ever. Uh, you could also contrast 2 Corinthians 1, verse 21 and 22, which also talks about the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit. You remember I've gone through the five works that the Holy Spirit performs at the moment that we believe. I'm not going to go back through that tonight. If you have questions about it, I'd be glad to go and review that after class. So we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. No potential of fall. The whole idea that you can lose your salvation is absolutely false. Eternal life is eternal. We have salvation. We don't have probation. To make our salvation based on our conduct after the point of regeneration is basically to acknowledge that we are really saved by our works, not by the work of Christ. The work of Christ is absolutely the basis of our salvation. Number four, there's a transfer of position out of Adam into Christ at the moment of salvation. So you'll remember, I think I've done this before, but 
I love this little verse because it just says so much. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all are made alive. And of course, if you go through that passage in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 4 and follow through to verse 8, he talks about the fact that though we were dead in trespasses and sins, God made us alive in Christ, raised us up. That means we were given resurrection life, seated us in heaven with him. Three great works that happen at the moment of salvation. We're made alive, we're raised up, and we're seated with Christ. For God to ever unseat any believer, he would have to unseat his own son. That's how great is our union with Jesus Christ. We are absolutely inseparable from him once we trust him as our savior. I know the argument that immediately comes up, well, then that means we can just sin and do anything we want. Oh, no, you need to understand the doctrine of divine discipline. God is a very strict father. And if you think you can go out and live any way you want, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, God placed righteousness in us and the Holy Spirit within us, and the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit lusts against the flesh. There's that inner war going on. And then he says, so that you cannot do what you want to do. Spirit of God is not going to allow you as a child of God to get away without discipline. And the discipline, as we've learned in Hebrews 12, goes from warning discipline to basically what we would call a good spanking to scourging, which is basically being flayed alive. So God has various levels of discipline that he'll take the believer through if they're disobedient. So we are transferred and Colossians chapter 1, I'm doing this one off the top of my head, but I believe it's Colossians 1.13. He transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. It's, it's absolutely staggering. We could spend the rest of our lives just studying what happens at the moment of salvation and all of the things that God does for us to secure our eternal destiny. And then we have, fifth and finally, we are not of the old creation. We are of the new creation. And you'll remember 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature or creation. Old things have passed away, all things become new. As a young believer, I used to hear primarily Baptist preachers teach that. And they would teach, if you're still thinking these thoughts, then you're not saved. If you still say these words, then you're not saved. If you do these things, then you're not saved. And I'm sitting there thinking, wait a minute, they told me if I believed in him, I'd have eternal life. And now this guy is teaching me that I don't have eternal life. They use that verse or abuse that verse. The old has to do with the old creation. Old things have passed away. Paul's not saying they ought to pass away. He's saying you are completely done with that old creation. Your old standing before God, your condemnation because of sin, everything that separated you from God, that is gone forever, and you are now a part of a new creation. We're looking here in Revelation 22 at that new creation that is now being brought forth. 
So in those first five verses, and you have these in your notes, I'll hit on them very quickly. We have the water of life. That's one of the new eternal joys. There are five eternal joys that we see in the first five verses. We see the tree of life. It's very difficult for us to understand now, and it's not explained why do we even need the tree of life. We already have eternal life, and the only thing I can describe is that it is just going to be a source of tremendous joy. Uh, every day is not going to be exactly the same. I would be bored stiff if every day was the same for only a week. It's going to be continually new. You remember that when he said, I make all things new, it's actually a present active participle, and he says, I am going to keep on making all things new. And I take that to fit with Ephesians 2, 7, where he says that in all the ages to come, he will continue to show the greatness of his grace to us in Christ. And I'm astounded by the grace that God has shown to me now. And he opens my eyes day by day as I continue to study the word to even greater blessings and greater wonder and greater gratitude. We haven't seen anything yet. Eternity is really going to open our eyes to how great is the grace of God to us. So we have the water of life, we have the tree of life, we have third, the curse is removed. I mean, how wonderful will that be by itself? Fellowship and service, his people shall serve him. His servants will serve him and they shall see his face. You ever wonder what God looks like? We're going to see him. We're going to look on his face. As I said last week, even Moses couldn't look on the face of God. But we will. And then, of course, there is dominion regained. And remember that when God put Adam and Eve in the garden, he gave them dominion over the earth. I threatened to teach a book because I run into Calvinist teaching all the time, and they're enthralled with the sovereignty of God, which is a great thing for us to study and value, but we shouldn't push it to the point where we become robots and we're just having our strings pulled. So I've threatened to teach a book called The Sovereignty of Man because the word dominion in Genesis when God gave Adam dominion is the word for sovereignty. He had sovereignty over this creation. He lost it because of the fall. It's going to be restored. We're going to have sovereignty over that new heaven and that new earth. How amazing. Then in verse 16 or 6 to 14, four keys to eternal blessing. Let's just read this. Verse 6, then he said to me, these words are faithful and true, as if anyone could doubt it. These words are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophet sent his angel to show his servant the things that must shortly take place. Verse 7, words directly from the Lord Jesus Christ, behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Those of you that have been with us from the beginning, you remember that there are seven beatitudes in the book of Revelation. Seven blessings. Two of them in this chapter. This is the first of the two. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. The book of Revelation pronounces special blessing to those who teach it and to those who study it. So we have special blessing given to us simply by the study of this book. Verse 8, I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, remember that 
what we are simply reading about, he is actually visually seeing. I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. I don't know about you, but if I were John writing the book of Revelation, I would have left this part out. You know? I, I in, in essence, committed an act of idolatry. I would be a little embarrassed. Verse 9, he said to me, see that you do not do that. That's kind of a long statement. The Greek says, see not. It's a very, very abrupt, very strong rebuke. See not, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. I will say one thing about, and by the way, John fell down to worship earlier. You'll remember in chapter 19 and verse 10. So he's done it twice now. Why do you think God doesn't allow us to see angels in their full form? When they appear, they appear as men, right? Very few people were allowed to see them. Daniel, Isaiah, and here John, to see them in their full glorious form. Wait a minute. Didn't we just read that we're going to look on the face of God? If John, who is now in his old age, who has been studying the Word of God longer than any of us, by this time he wrote this, he's like 95 years old. Not only that, he's an apostle. Not only that, he walked with Christ for three years. Not only that, he's received direct revelation and wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John the Gospel of John and Revelation. I mean, this guy is the only apostle who had the advantage of being able to read the entire New Testament. Have you ever thought of that? How much wisdom was in this man? And how humble was he, we see in the Gospel. And yet when he sees this angel and the angel reveals these things to him, he is so overwhelmed by the power and the might and the glory and the beauty that he falls down to worship this angel. It, I can only ask again, what's it going to be like when we look on the face of God? We're going to be so overwhelmed. Verse 9, he said to me, do not do, uh, worship God. Verse 10, he said to me, do not steal, seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. You will remember that Gabriel, speaking to Daniel at the end of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, verses 4 and 9, said, seal up the book, because it is not to be opened until the time. Don't you find it kind of interesting that it wasn't until the late 1800s that the book of Daniel began to make sense to people. No one really understood what it was all about. Strange visions, strange events, strange things happening. Toward the end of the 1800s, early 1900s, we have the rise of the nation of Israel again out of obscurity for 2,000 years until finally in 1948 they declare their nationhood once again the only nation in all of history that ever came back with the same name, with the same language, with the same currency, and the same beliefs. It's, it's just absolutely a miracle. And it, by the way, it happened in a day. What did the prophets say? Shall a nation be given birth in one day? It happened with the nation of Israel. So this book is not sealed, and in fact, the book of Revelation is what ultimately unseals the book of Daniel. 
Notice verse 11. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. What does this mean? This means that once we get to the point, let's say we're going through history here, we have the time of tribulation, we have the millennial kingdom, a thousand years, we have the great white throne judgment. From that point, there's no turning back. In other words, we're now in eternity. Those who have received Christ, they're secure. Those who have rejected Christ, they're condemned. There will be no changing, no purgatory. There's only one place in the entire Bible that talks about purgatory, and that's in Hebrews chapter 1, and it talks about when Christ purged our sins. He was the one that did the purging to pay the penalty for our sins. So verse 12 then, behold, I'm coming quickly. Man, how I wish it was quick. And my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed, here's the second beatitude in this chapter. Blessed are those who do his commandments. Does anyone have a different translation in there? Wash their robes. Yeah, that's a better translation. Nan's happy because it's New American Standard and I use New King James and we go back and forth all the time. That is a better translation. Blessed are those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. That they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. All right, let's just notice four keys to eternal blessing in these verses that we've read. The first, of course, is the word of God in verses 6 and 7. God's word is always the key. You know, even when it comes to worship, we have, in, our, in this generation, we've really redefined worship. We now call worship singing, and Bible study is Bible study or teaching. The Bible teaches that worship is what you do with the word of God. Singing can be part of that. Singing is praise. Singing gives honor to God, so on and so forth. But remember the first time the word worship is used in the Bible. Anybody Abraham. remember where it is? Abraham. Abraham going up the mountain to offer Isaac. God gave him a command. He obeyed the command. And he said, we are going to go and we're going to worship. So that's really ultimately... I don't deny that singing and praise and prayer and all those other things are part of it, but we never want to get away from the Word of God. We've gotten to where in our churches today, we oftentimes have 45 minutes of singing and 15 minutes of Bible class, and that's backwards. That's not the way it's intended to be. So the Word of God, first. Secondly, the worship of God. And we see that, of course, in verses 8 and 9, where the Angel rebukes John, worship only God. <clears throat> and then, of course, worship involves, and I have these listed for you, it involves sacrifice. We saw that in Genesis 22. It demands separation or purity, Psalm 29:2. Worship is possible because of God's provisions of grace, John 4:24. Remember the those that worship God must worship in what? Spirit and in truth. 
God's provisions make that possible. And then fourth, worship is a way of life. Romans 12, 1 and 2, where we have, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Next, we have the work of faith, and we see that in verses 10 through 13. Uh, the work of faith is the dividing line. How do the just become just? By faith. How do the unjust remain unjust? By rejecting Christ. You know, when the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, that is going to be the point where every person who ends up in the lake of fire will convict themselves. They are going to declare, I had all the information I needed. I had multiple opportunities to believe. I hardened my heart. I rejected Christ. And I now own him for who he is, God in the flesh, the Savior of the world. And I acknowledge that I rejected him. And they will ultimately convict themselves. So the work of faith is the dividing line. And of course, when Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, this is from the beginning of Scripture to the end. This is the written word. It tells us everything we need to know. He, of course, is the living word, and he is the beginning and the end of the plan of God. And then finally, we have in verse 14, the washing of regeneration. The final beatitude, blessed are those who have washed their robes. Our salvation is not based on keeping the commandments for the simple fact that no one can. You know, we often talk about the work of Christ at the cross as the basis of saving us, but one thing we often overlook is that from the moment of his birth until he died on the cross, he lived an absolutely perfect life. We're going to get into this uh, a little bit, I think, Sunday morning. Uh, our pastor's gone, and I'm going to have the opportunity to fill in with him. But uh, we oftentimes forget Christ is the elect one. And what was he elect to? He was elect to be rejected. He was elected by God to take our place. He went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He was judged in our place. But never forget that the righteousness that's imputed to us is not just the inherent righteousness that Christ has within himself. It's the righteousness of his entire life. Here a man walked on the earth without ever once breaking a law for a moment, for a second. That life of perfect righteousness belongs to us. When God sees you, when God sees me, he sees us as having lived a perfect life. When the scripture says we are accepted in the beloved, this is what it means. When Paul says, and we're going to be in the book of Philippians Sunday morning, and he's sending this errant slave Onesimus back home to his master, and Philemon had the opportunity and the authority from the Roman Empire to kill him. This would not have been an easy thing for Onesimus to go back home. But what does Paul say? Receive him as you would receive me. That's the identification we have with Christ. When the devil accuses us, you know, he's called the accuser of the brethren. I don't know how many times 
He brings your name up, but he brings mine up a lot. I think he accuses us, especially when we fail. When we think those thoughts, say those words, do those things we shouldn't do, there he is before the throne saying, look down here, you got a believer. The tragic thing is a lot of Bible teachers do the same thing. Look down here, you got a guy that claims to be a believer, and look how he's living, and look what he's doing. How can he be called a child of God? You know what Jesus does? He stands up as our defense attorney. We have an advocate before the Father. Who is it? Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he's not only our advocate, he not only represents us, he is, stands in our place. They're with me. Receive them as you would receive me. That's basically the idea. So the washing of regeneration, what a marvelous thing. Again, we could spend the rest of our lives studying it. Uh, let's note that uh, in contrast to those who have washed their robes, verse 15 and following, we have the final invitation outside, that is outside of the kingdom of God, are dogs, by the way, just a little bit of historical background, dog was used for those who were involved in sexual perversion, particularly male sexual perversion, homosexuality. In fact, it was a word that was used for male prostitutes. It's not just calling people dogs because, you know, I don't like dogs. Uh, one of the provisions that was made in the law was that <clears throat> you could not bring the price of a dog into the temple. What is the price of a dog? Well, you say somebody's got a German shepherd for $15. No, that's not what it's talking about. Uh, you can check this out if you want. Deuteronomy 23, verse 18 uh, talks about it. The price of a dog refers to the price of a male prostitute. So outside are dogs and sorcerers. Word for sorcery, you all know it. Pharmakia. Pharmakia. Pharmaceutical. Why is the pharmaceutical... We talk about big pharma. Why do they have such a stranglehold on the world? Because we're moving in the direction of an absolute sorcery-run world. Sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lot. It's referring here to those who are unregenerate. You might remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul speaks to the Corinthians. You can read through the chapter. And he says... Uh, that those who are immoral, those who are this, uh, what we've just read, shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he says something very telling. And I was just mentioning we might go into 1 Corinthians next. That book is so absolutely full of phenomenal teaching. And unfortunately, it's not taught enough because the Corinthians were believers who were absolutely, the majority of them, completely out of line. There are at least 10 major sins that Paul records as being committed in the Corinthian church, including people getting drunk at the Lord's table. And he still calls them believers. So the next time someone tells you, well, if they do that, they can't be a believer, tell them to read 1 Corinthians. But in chapter 6, after he goes through this list of all these heinous sins, he says something very interesting. Now, he's already indicted them for sexual immorality, for division, for false doctrine, for a whole lot of things. And then he says this, 
Such were some of you, but you were washed. That's what makes all the difference in the world. If we go through Bible history, I'm sure I don't have to take you on a ride through the pages of Scripture. You can find believers doing everything that you can imagine. Aaron. Aaron was the high priest of the children of Israel. What did he do? He made an image and led them in idolatry and then sexual immorality. When Paul says the people sat down to eat and rose up to play, he doesn't mean that they were playing tiddlywinks. It was a sex orgy. It's much more graphic uh, in the Hebrew. So we need to understand that we're talking here about people without Christ. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. What an absolutely amazing statement. I am the root and the offspring. In other words, I'm the beginning of the lineage of David, and I'm the end of the lineage of David. That's pretty interesting. Remember when David was arguing, or when Jesus was arguing with the Pharisees, and he asked them the question, whose son is the Messiah? And they said, well, he's David's son. And Jesus said, well, how come then David calls him Lord? They couldn't answer him. It's because he's the root and the offspring, as we see here. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come, let him who hears say, come, let him who thirsts come. Here's the invitation to the gospel. We're still living in time. We still have an opportunity. This is why we continue to do mission work. We continue to do evangelism. We continue to send out books, materials. We share with our neighbors. Why are we doing this? We still have the opportunity. We still have time. We are still in the age when people can make a decision to trust Christ as their Savior, and we need to be inviting them. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely, for I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these words, God will add to him the plagues that are written in the book. That would terrify me. I would not want to try to put in an extra verse. If anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and the things that are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm coming quickly. Amen. The last prayer in the Bible. By the way, even so, come Lord Jesus. And then John wraps it up by saying, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Let's just hit on a couple of uh, points here. When Jesus speaks, we dealt with the root and the offspring of David. But what about the bright morning star? What's the bright morning star mean? Well, if you go back, you'll remember in Numbers 24, 17, a very dubious character by the name of Balaam made a prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that prophecy was that he was a star that would rise out of Israel. You can also compare Luke 1, 78, 2 Peter 1, 19. Again, they're in your notes. In the darkest time of history, he will shine as the promise of the dawn of eternity. In the darkest night of human history, Jesus said that the time of tribulation 
would be unparalleled in all of human history. In that dark time, it's going to take that darkness to wake people up to the fact that he is the only hope. And in the, the bleakness and the fear and the danger and the darkness of that time, Christ will shine brighter and brighter as the only promise and the only hope. He's also called, if you remember, Malachi ends his book by speaking of the coming of the Son of Righteousness. Well, when do we see the bright morning star? We see the bright morning star right before the dawn. So he's both the morning star as well as the rising of the sun. And then, of course, the concluding invitation not only of Revelation, but of the entire Bible, whosoever will. Uh, again, there are those who teach. Whosoever doesn't really mean whosoever. Whosoever only means a few. No, the invitation is to all. All are invited. Christ died for all. The gospel is to go to all. All have the opportunity to believe. And you know, when we, <clears throat> when we share the gospel message with friends and family, neighbors, people on the street, it can get discouraging because we do a whole lot more sowing than we do reaping. We will have, I mean, some people are just gifted as evangelists and they see people come to Christ all the time. Uh, there are others who I fear sometimes fabricate. One of the things we're always asked, in fact, I was asked at our church, how many people came to Christ? My answer is always the same, I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, I have been on the mission field and I've seen missionaries ask everybody, uh, would all of you like to live forever? And they all raise their hands and so they say, we spoke to a thousand people and everybody made a decision for Christ. Well, no, they didn't. You manipulated them into raising their hands so that you could take a picture of it and tell people everybody came to Christ. I never try to count. I never try to worry about how many came to Christ, how many didn't, only God knows that. And the thing of it is, we sow the seed, we don't know how far down the road, a week, a month, a year, someone else is going to come to them. It happened to me. I remember a guy that, that, that sowed the seed of the gospel uh, in my soul probably a couple of years at least before I came to Christ. He even encouraged me to memorize John 3.16. I memorized it, I could quote it to you. I could reel it off as well as I can today. But you know what? It made no sense to me. It was divine truth that could not penetrate my soul until God had prepared the soil of my soul to be able to receive it. And a couple of years later, when a second person was brought into my life to begin now watering the seed that had been planted, he was the one that got to reap. I never saw the other guy again. He never knew that anything ever happened. And most of us won't either. Sow the seed. Share the gospel. Point people to Christ. You don't have to be brilliant. You don't have to be eloquent. You don't have to know everything in the Bible. If you know John 3.16, you can point people to Christ. Get a verse. Get a handful of verses. Memorize those verses. Share those verses with people. If you're too bashful to talk, and some people have a terrible time being able to speak, especially to strangers, 
get some good tracks, make sure they're good, make sure they're accurate, or just get some little cards and just write. I know a guy that he and his wife go down to Florida for vacation sometimes, and uh, he will walk along the beach, and he picks up rocks on the beach, and he'll take little colored markers, and he will write gospel messages on the rocks and then throw them down. <laughs> he scatters the beach with all of these, and one time we went there and we found one of them. I don't know whatever happened to it. He had been there, I don't know, a month, two months before, and he let us stay in their cottage thing, whatever they had. Bobby's been here. Here's one of his, one of his rocks. How many people pick those up? And how many people are guided by God just at that moment they need it the most? You know, we just had a meal together before we came down here, and uh, we met a young lady by the name of Kendra, and uh, Michael asked her, can we pray for something for you while we're praying for our meal? And you know, it was funny. It was, it was kind of like for a minute she was stunned and, and kind of staggered. And then she said, well, I'm really going through some health struggles. You might pray for Kendra. She actually joined hands with us as we prayed for her. Who knows what just planting that little seed mm -hmm. might do. If she just said, no, nah, I don't even believe in it, we'd have just said, hey, we're going to pray for you anyway. Mm -hmm. You don't know how far down the road that's going to come back, and they're going to say, wow, if only I'd known then what I know now. So that's exactly right. So come. Notice how many times it says it here. Who says it? The Spirit says come. The Holy Spirit is always calling people to Christ. The bride says come. That's us. We're supposed to be saying come. We're supposed to be giving the invitation. Remember Jesus in John 7? I love this. As a matter of fact, turn to John 7. This would be a good, good way for us to kind of reinforce what I'm saying here. I, I really love this particular story. Let me find it. I'm using a Bible that doesn't have all my marking in it. Verse 37. It's it's really important here that it was on the last day. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. The eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles was a time of silence. For seven days, the priests would go to the Pool of Siloam, and they would dip water from the Pool of Siloam, and it was a very solemn procession. The people would lie in the streets, and the priests would bring the water, and they would pour the water out at the altar. On the eighth day, the great day, this day, everyone would line up and there was total silence. Total silence. Millions. Um, I forget, um, Josephus estimates that there were two million people in attendance at the Feast of Tabernacle at that time. Two million. On that day, put those thoughts in your mind and then Think of this. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried. Did you ever wonder how in the world in a crowd of two million people, everybody babbling, how would he have been heard? Total silence. And he stood and cried out. And the word cried is a word that really means to belt out 
to yell it out. If anyone thirsts, anyone, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John gives us an interpretation in verse 39. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Have you ever stopped and thought how privileged we are over Old Testament saints? We have things, Moses, Abraham, David, Isaiah, Daniel, all of the great ladies of the Old Testament, they couldn't, couldn't even dream of. This is why Peter in 1 Peter 1, along about verse 12, talks about the prophets. And he said that the prophets would sit down after they had written their prophecies and they would search, trying to figure out what the spirit of Christ in them was saying. When is this going to happen? How is this going to come about? Who is going to be the recipients? And Peter says, it was revealed to them that not to them, but to you, these things would be given. They looked ahead and they said, there's a greater people coming. There is greater work that God is going to do that we will never see until we enter into eternity. And we often think of ourselves, oh, when I get to heaven, I want to I see David. I, I want to meet with the Apostle Paul. I wonder if I can make an appointment with Moses. What we don't realize, those people, particularly from the Old Testament, they're going to be clamoring to meet you. You may find that hard to believe, but that is very true. They are going to feel honored when they enter into your presence. You may think, I'm small, insignificant, I've never done anything. Well, it's not because of what we do, it's because of who we are. It's because of who we are in Christ. We are members of the royal family of God. We are a high priesthood. We are a nation of priests and kings. They're going to be banging down your door to say, hey, are, are you busy tomorrow? Is there time we can get together for coffee, tea, whatever? Maybe they'll have the kind of wine Jesus made in Cana. Who knows? So the invitation continues to go out, and we need to continue to be a part of that. And isn't it interesting, when we get to that warning, if you come back to chapter 22, this is just a little bit hilarious. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and the things that are written in it. This verse is missing from the Reader's Digest Condensed Bible. Yeah. Make sure you have the whole Bible. All right. With that, I'm going to pray, and we are done with the book of Revelation. And then if you have any questions, I'll be glad to try to answer them. Thank you, Father, for your marvelous grace. Thank you above all for your word. Thank you for faithful men like John, uh, all of those who preach the word, the prophets, the apostles, the early pastors and teachers. They paid a price for what they did. They paid a price to pass down to us the words that we have. Their suffering is our blessing. And Father, as we conclude this marvelous book, let us remember that we're not just finishing the book of Revelation, we're concluding the entire Bible. In the beginning, God, and in the end, the Lord Jesus, saying, I am coming quickly. 
Help us, Father, to live in eager anticipation of his coming, but help us not to use his coming as an excuse or an escape. Help us rather to redeem the time and realize we are in the closing moments of this age of history and we have the opportunity to make a difference in the life of someone around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.